Your word, O God, is a feast all its own. Let your Holy Spirit open our minds to your call to listen. For we know your holy word heals and reconciles your people. Amen. Isaiah 25, verses 1 to 9. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The palace of foreigners is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a refuge to the poor, a refuge to the needy in their distress, a shelter from the rainstorm and a shade from the heat. When the blast of the ruthless was like a winter rainstorm, the noise of foreigners like a heat in a dry place, you subdued the heat with the shade of clouds. The song of the ruthless was still. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the covering that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, See, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading for this morning is from Matthew 21, 22, I'm sorry, the first 14 verses. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Look, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. 
He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so that the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see those guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing a wedding robe, and he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. (laughs) The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's pray. Beyond our understanding, you alone are God. You speak to a world of brutal rule and shallow indifference, of arms fairs and reality shows. May the one who came to sit at table with the victimized and excluded disturb our barren peace and call us to another feast where only love may rule. Through Jesus Christ, the Bridegroom. Amen. When Asher was born, Sarah and I were living in a small, half-double house, emphasis on small, in Hopewell, New Jersey. It was a humble, if not overpriced, rental property, but we made the best of it. And soon after Asher was born, we started noticing that small things were out of place in the house, particularly in the kitchen. In the morning, you'd wake up and see a jar of oregano had fallen off the spice rack onto the floor and thought, huh, that's strange. I wonder why that happened. Maybe something shook it loose in the night. Were there tremors last night? I don't know. And I remember one morning seeing that the ground mustard on the spice rack had a small hole in the corner of it. And I asked Sarah, "Did, did you drop the ground mustard yesterday? And is that why there's a small hole in it? She said, no. And kind of laughed about it and thought, well, that's very strange. And so we made up some story of how these weird things kept happening. And then one night we were watching a movie in our front room and suddenly Sarah let out this blood-curdling scream because there, just a few feet from where we were sitting with our newborn baby was a rat who is far less afraid to see us than we were to see it. It wasn't very long after that that we left New Jersey to come back to the great state of Ohio. (laughs) Because while we try to be generous people, sharing our homes with rats was not something that we were going to live with. Looking back, what always makes me laugh about that event was the way that we kept trying to explain what was happening before we knew what was going on. The truth is this, we were living with rats, and we didn't know it. And until we faced that truth, we couldn't deal with it. And as I look at this most difficult parable of Jesus, I wonder if the church has been doing the same thing. 
See, most commentators go to great lengths to try to excuse the bad behavior of this king. Because the standard reading is that the king represents God. Now, why do we assume that? Well, I think it's about as complicated as this. Rich kings are powerful. God is powerful. And that's about all the thought that we put into it. And so if we assume that the king is God, then we are forced to go through all of these mental gymnastics, creating different explanations about how the real bad guys are those people who didn't respond to the king's invitation. And that the king, you know, he really is justified for burning their city to the ground. And how the real culprit is this guy in the wrong clothes. But it all falls flat to me. It's like making up stories of why the ground mustard was gnawed open when we were living with a rat. And until we face the rat, we can't deal with it. So let me briefly run you through a typical reading of this parable. Jesus is telling the last of three parables in his confrontation with the chief priests and the elders during Holy Week. They come to him and ask him, where it is that he gets his authority from. And Jesus answers with three parables. We looked at the first two weeks ago, the parable of the two sons, in which Jesus implores the religious leaders to consider that they may be wrong. And the second parable we heard last week, the parable of the tenant farmers, in which we see how divine vulnerability faces human violence. And now we're at the grand finale, the parable of the wedding banquet. And so it starts with a king who hosts a wedding banquet for his son. He sends out his slaves to invite his rich and powerful friends, but they scorn the king's invite. Some of them seize his slaves, mistreat them, and kill them. And this makes the king very, very angry. In fact, his fragile ego is so hurt at being snubbed by his elite friends, he says, kill my slaves, will you? I'll kill you and burn your city to the ground. And he does. And then, undeterred that his party plans not be thwarted by the inferno that he just caused, the king tells his slaves to go through the burning embers of the still smoldering city to find anyone who might come and pack the wedding hall. Because after all, on the heels of a massacre, what's more important than that the king gets his party. Now, ask yourself, who is going to turn this king's invitation down after they saw what just happened to the people who dared to do that? Right, you'd be a fool to not go to that wedding hall. And so the show must go on. And first, everything's going great. Until this temperamental king notices that someone is not dressed properly. Very important. Stop everything. Cut the music. And the king confronts this guy and says, Friend, how do you get in here dressed like that? Now notice he says, Friend. That's important. We'll, we'll come back to that in a couple minutes. Well, this poor guy says nothing. And the king has him bound up and thrown into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many are called, few are chosen. End of parable. Whatever this story is, it doesn't sound like good news, does it? And if this king is supposed to represent God, 
then I don't know what to say except we're going to need a better God than that. That's a God I don't believe in. And in pulpits all over the world today, preachers are busy making excuses for this king's behavior. They're saying things like, well, you know, when you think about it, everyone deserves God's wrath. And so it's a miracle that anyone can come to God's wedding feast. Or they're saying things like, well, you know, that robe, that robe represents Christ's righteousness. And by not wearing it, this poor man is trying to stand before God on his own merits instead of living by faith like a good Protestant. They're saying things like, well, you need to remember how Matthew's community had just witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem. And so this story emerges from the trauma of that event. All those, all those things, they just sound like the kind of excuses that I make for myself after I lose my temper. And I think we should expect more from God than that. So let's at least consider the possibility that the king doesn't represent God. What if the king represents powerful people and how they typically respond to snubs and threats to their power? What if the king is like someone, oh, I don't know, like King Herod? who is known for exactly this kind of erratic violence, this never-ending cycle of violence where we respond to a snub or a hurt with more violence, thinking that somehow that's going to end it. But of course it doesn't. What if this king is meant to represent the kingdom of violence? Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven can be compared to this story. Well, comparisons work both by similarities and dissimilarities. Perhaps this parable is meant to illustrate how God's kingdom contrasts with our earthly, violent kingdoms. Maybe it's meant to contrast with the feast where only love may rule, as our prayer of the day states. What if Jesus is once again telling us the truth, but telling it slant? Now, I like that idea, but we're still left wondering, is there any good news in this story? Let's consider the bloke without the wedding garments. What if he's not meant to be an example of smug ingratitude? What if he is someone who resists the kingdom of violence? The king has already shown what he does to those who dare to disrespect him. And what if this man wearing without a wedding garment is sending a message to the king and everyone who's witnessing that he would not fall in line with this regime of death? That others may be afraid of you, but I see who you are. And I will not excuse what you've done. Now, of course, none of this is spoken. And when this man is confronted by the king... Matthew tells us the man is speechless. And then he's bound and thrown into the outer darkness. Well, Jesus tells this story on Monday of Holy Week when he is confronted by the chief priests and the elders. Well, on Thursday night of that same week, Jesus will be met by an armed mob sent by these same chief priests and elders. And that mob is going to be led by Judas. And when Judas confronts Jesus, Jesus calls him friend. Just like the king does in the parable to that silent resistor. 
But unlike the king in the parable, Jesus doesn't respond with violence. And in the outer darkness of the night, the soldiers would bind and arrest Jesus, and over the next few hours, there would be much weeping and gnashing of teeth. And over the course of his trial, Jesus would remain silent in the face of his accusers. And so in every way, we see that Jesus does the opposite of this king in the parable. He meets violence with silence, holding up a mirror for all of us who think that might makes right. And he says, I'll take your violence into my own body, and I will send back blessing." In this parable, we see the grace of God not in a violent, capricious king, but in this silent resistor who is the chosen one. Many are called, few are chosen. Jesus is the chosen one. And the truth is, God calls all of us to join Jesus in nonviolent resistance. But few of us follow. If we're honest, when we're met with threats, most of us will take the safe route and try to save our own skin. But Jesus is the chosen one who, for our sakes, does not take the safe route, who stood unafraid before the bullies of this world, who understood that if we respond to violence with more violence, that cycle never ends. Someone must be willing to stop the cycle, or all of our cities will burn. Jesus' silent resistance invites us to imagine a world without violence, where even betrayers can be called friend, a world where forgiveness is broad enough to include even the very worst of us. And so Jesus invites us to face the rats of rage and violence that we've been living with for far too long. Now, most of us don't think of ourselves as violent people. But when faced with threats, it's amazing how quickly we can go towards retribution. It's hard to look at. But the only way to deal with the problem is to face it. And I can no longer make excuses for a violent king or a violent God. I don't believe in that God. But the God I do believe in is one who holds up a mirror to the very, the very worst in me and still calls me friend. In the end, that's the only God worth believing in. A God who invites us to a feast where all are welcome, not under the threat of violence, but at the welcome of grace. A God who is love, love, love. Amen.